Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Pop Animated Comics Lounge, where I have with me one of the great comic writers, Chuck Dixon, who has worked for Marvel DC, where he has helped to tell and create many Batman stories and characters, including Bane and one of my favorites, Stephanie Brown, and several other publishers. So thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is always good. I am super excited, and you've been writing for so many years, and you really started in the mid-1980s. What initially drew you into the comic book world and industry? I was attracted to comics even before I could read, and I just knew I wanted to be a part of the comic book world. When I was a kid, you know, I wrote and drew my own comics on any spare piece of paper. Just the medium fascinated me. I mean, I love the characters. I love Batman. I love Spider-Man. Fantastic Four. But really, the medium is what I enjoy the most. Any kind of comic book. And I read them all when I was a kid because there were so many comics around when I was a kid. Comics were just more available back then. Everywhere you went, there were comics. So I was exposed to funny animal comics and war comics, horror comics, everything. So I just loved all of it. And can you go into that a little bit? What was the comic book scene like growing up before the 1980s? Well, I came up like in the 60s and everywhere you went, everybody had comics. Almost every house had comics. If you went to the barbershop, there were comics. At the drugstore, there were comics. So... I remember borrowing the comic collection of one of my sister's friends. My sisters were older than me. So I read a lot of stuff from the 50s because they had stacks and stacks of old DCs from the 50s that I read when I was a kid. But back then, you were expected to outgrow them. (laughs) And I never did. So there wasn't really a fandom. I mean, there was, but you had to hunt for it. And I remember the first comic book convention I went to, I think it was 1971. I was just astounded that here were a few thousand other people who collect comics because that's not something I ran into a lot. It was kind of a subculture. It's funny because comics sold so well back then. They sold in the millions back then, yet it was a subculture. And they're more accepted today, even though they don't sell anywhere near those numbers. And given that they were selling by the millions and you're reading things from the 50s to 60s and you never outgrew them, what were some of the titles that you were reading growing up and what really stood out to you and still sticks with you? so many years later. I was at the perfect age when the Marvel age of comics came along because when I first started being aware of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, they were still doing those monster books, you know, Tales of Suspense and Strange Tales. And I remember running across Fantastic Four number five and I was just floored. What was in that comic was amazing. And then I started seeking out the rest of them. You know, Spider-Man started coming out in the Hulk and things like that. So, yeah, I was right there, right at the beginning of that whole revolution in comics. And I was still a fan of Batman. I still love Sergeant Rock and things like that. But Marvel really captured my imagination. And with Marvel capturing your imagination and the Stanley, Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko era really starting, were there any writers in particular who really influenced you to want to write and create comics? Well, the very first writer I ever noticed, because Stan Lee, I didn't think of as a writer. He was like a personality. The way he would inject himself, he was part of Marvel's marketing scheme, which was brilliant. He personalized the comic, so he was Stan the man, but I never really thought about what he did. So the first writer I ever paid attention to was Archie Goodwin. Archie was writing at Jim Warren's company, doing creepy and eerie comics. And I didn't know what an EC comic was, but Archie was kind of riffing off of them with the eight-page stories with the surprise ending or the horrifying ending. But to this day, I still admire Archie because his economy, the way he could mix the words and the pictures in just the right balance. He didn't intrude on the story. He didn't make you notice the writing. I only noticed his name because it was on all my favorite horror stories. All my favorite stories in Creeping Area were written by the same guy. I thought, wow, this guy's awesome. So I began studying him, paying more attention to what he did and how he wrote and how he told the story. And now with you noticing all of that, 
in really 1984, and I know we're skipping some stuff here, but... Oh, no, that's okay. In 1984, you really had your first entry into the comic world with Evangeline, which originally was your first book, which was originally published by Comico, Comics Co. Comics, right. and then First Comics. How did you get involved with this book and the idea behind this book and going about finding a publisher at this time? I was working off and on again writing children's books and there wasn't a lot of work there so i was also working at a video store <laughs> things like that so i had all these dead-end donkey jobs thankless jobs but i was always taking a run at comics i was always going up to dc and marvel for interviews and putting out pitches but, you know i never was getting anywhere and then Kamiko opened up they always explain that it's pronounced Kamiko because the guys that ran it were italian so it helps you understand why it's called Kamiko. And they were running it out of a town called Norristown, just above Philadelphia. And that was within driving distance of where I was living. So I was able to actually drive there and pester them until they gave me a shot with that book, Evangeline. And I stayed there for a little bit. They weren't real fans of creator ownership. So I left there and started looking at other places. And eventually, Eclipse Comics and Marvel Comics almost simultaneously broke into both companies by them taking stories from me. And now to talk about Marvel first because marvel is very fascinating because you were noticed by larry hama who hired you to do a few backup stories for marvel comics savage sort of conan how did this all come about i would go to conventions and network because the editors used to go to conventions so you could go there and talk to them and stuff i would never pitch at conventions but i would talk to them so they would know who i was so that when i called them on the phone for an interview oh, i'm that guy that was talking to you about black panther or whatever oh yeah okay you know and then go for an interview so and along the way i met other writers and other artists and one of them was hillary barda and hillary and i would talk on the phone every now and then and one time he called me to tell me that larry hama was starting up a new anthology at marvel he was restarting savage tales as a war and western anthology and hillary knew i liked both those genres and thought i might want to get involved but he warned me that larry could be difficult which larry was always difficult at the beginning and he would be great so i called larry and really pushed i'm not big on pushing myself but i really wanted to be on that book and i liked larry's work a lot and i wanted to be part of it and i felt it was going to be something cool which it, it did turn out to be very cool so i pushed myself on the phone and he begrudgingly agreed to let me send in some plot ideas which i did and i sent in about a dozen plot ideas for short stories world war ii stories and westerns and things like that and he bought half of them and then continued to buy more as i went along and then eventually gave me the backup in conan savage sort of conan and eventually the lead feature so i was on Savage Sword for about five years. So he gave it the regular gig. And then he was great. He went around to other editors and recommended me and talked about, you know, I was reliable. I was a decent person. And my mother didn't dress me funny. So that was where I took off at Marvel. And given that you liked this type of book and that you worked your way up from the backstory to having a few opportunities on the main story for Conan, what did that mean for you personally and professionally? Well, personally, getting the right to lead feature in Savage Sword meant that I could quit my regular job. I was working as a security guard at the time. But Savage Sword was 50 pages a month. So that was enough. So I could quit my job and I could afford to get married, things like that. I could afford to start thinking about buying a house. Hopefully it was a full-time career. But I thought if I'm on this for a few years, it's a good start. And then I was also working at Eclipse at the same time and they were keeping me pretty busy. So it just kind of built from there. But Savage Sword, that allowed me to go full-time pro comic book writer. And now I want to ask a really good question about Larry Hama. He was the acting editor on the book. What did you pick 
pick up from him being so new into the comic world at this time? He's just a renaissance man. Larry can do everything. I mean, Larry can letter a comic. He can draw a comic, ink a comic, you know, write it, whatever. Whatever you need done, Larry do it. I would listen to him, listen to when he talked to other people, because the guy was so instructive. I mean, I can almost verbatim remember every conversation I've ever had with the guy over the years, because he always learned something new. The guy it truly is a sage about all kinds of things. And he would have little sayings like, don't write a human relationship until you've had one. Things like that. And he really taught me about how to be more economical in my story structure, things about how to end a story, how to begin a story, just stuff like that. And then the biggest thing was that as long as I wasn't totally screwing up, he would just let me go. There wasn't a lot of correction because he knew to hire people who had an instinct for this and then just trust them. And I found from that point on, all of my favorite editors basically had the same approach, kind of a hands-off. They gave you the job and trusted you. If you screwed up, they gave you hell about it. But if you were doing okay, they let you go. And have you ever screwed up and what happened? There's been personality clashes with editors who don't seem to approach the material the way I do. But that's actually been pretty rare. For the most part, I've gotten along with my editors. I mean, my approach to editors is that we're in a partnership. We're both trying to make the best comic we can. It's not a boss-employee situation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they are the boss, and they're the ones that decide whether you're going to get the job or whether you're going to get paid or not. But I've never looked at it that way. I always think, well, we're in this together to make the best comic we can. And if the editor isn't there to make the best comic we can, then we have a problem. And now to back out of Marvel a little bit and talk about Eclipse, and in particular, a comic that some people might know, some people might not know, which is Airboy. Yeah, Airboy, it was a weird comic because it was a golden age comic that was so popular but completely forgot. And it was so popular, it sold in the millions of copies in the late 40s, early 50s, that in the 70s, you could still buy copies of it. They were around. You could go to a comic shop, you could pick up a golden age comic for two bucks, three bucks, because there were so many Airboys. They simply weren't scarce, so they weren't worth anything. But I love the character, and Jim Steranko wrote a lot about him in the history of comics and that was my intro and then i went out looking for the comics themselves and it's a zany idea this adolescent kid flying a fighter plane in world war ii that's built to fly like leonardo da vinci designed it like it flaps its wings but i love the zaniness of it and all the backup characters skywolf and valkyrie and things like that so when tim truman who was working at eclipse doing scout when he told me that cat ironwood and dean mulaney at eclipse were thinking of reviving airboy i flipped i said i've got to write that book and i think they were kind of surprised i knew as much about the characters I did. And Tim vouched for me, and they gave me a shot at it. It was a bi-weekly title at the time. It came out every two weeks. And I just dove into it. 100% enthusiasm was fueling me. And with Kat's encouragement, and also Tim's encouragement, we didn't stray too far from the zaniness of the original concept. We didn't update everything to the point where it was unrecognizable. So it was a lot of fun. And there's a lot going on with this. And one of the things that this comic did versus the 1942 comic is that it was the main character's son. How did that idea get hashed out? We didn't want a period book. We wanted to modernize it so that readers could relate to it. And it's essentially a war book. And there was enough going on in the world at the time that there were war zones, and there always are. And we could insert him into these war zones, which inadvertently turned it into a topical book. I mean, we had a few issues that were controversial because we were dealing with things that were going on in the headlines at the time. So that sort of helped it. And Dean Mullaney at Eclipse, he loved controversy. He sold so many books by being controversial that it would get news headlines, it would get attention. So it was a great marriage of personalities at the time, all of us together working on this book. 
And this book is interesting because there are several Airboy spinoffs in the Airboy universe that occurred that you got to work on, including Skywolf and two Valkyrie spinoffs. Just to name a few, what was it like to have this opportunity to really continue to play around in this universe, for lack of a better word? Well, I never knew numbers. Pat and Dean weren't very sharing as far as how well this stuff was doing, but apparently it was doing well enough because they kept asking me for more and more material. And I'm very grateful that it was always me they turned to, that they liked my take on the character so much that they would go, well, let's do a Valkyrie mini. Let's do a Air Maiden special. Let's do a Skywolf mini. So they kept turning to me to do all these things. And I was more than happy because I tend to invest myself in characters, I tend to stay on runs for a long time. Because for me, once I'm invested in character, more and more ideas occur to me. Not less ideas, but more ideas because I get more into their universe, their existence, and their inner character relationships. So just more and more stories grow out of that. So they were very, very encouraging to that. Airboy lasted 50 issues and multiple spinoffs, but eventually the steam ran out of it and we moved on. But 50 issues for an indie comic at that time was pretty remarkable. And Airboy, in recent years, has gone through a little bit of a revival where certain elements of it have been re-released by Moonstone in 2007, as well as you got to kind of write another story, Airboy Dead Eyes, in 2012, almost 30 years after. What was that like? it being still relevant and having an opportunity so many years later. Well, Moonstone and the Antarctic books allowed me to write stories of the original Airboy and do period, because I like that too. So I got to do Airboy set in World War II. To me, any story that involves killing a lot of Nazis is a good story. And Airboy was always great at that. In his original incarnation, it was a real annihilation kind of book. I mean, he was always sinking battleships and blowing up airplane factories and things like that. He was a no-holds-barred war character, super patriotic. It was a propaganda character comic lots of them out like that but it was really fun to go back and delve into that period with some of the crazier elements I mean, we got to have him meet g8 and his battle aces the old pulp characters that was just awesome and now to continue kind of talking a little bit more on the indie side you got an opportunity to work with somebody that you admired archie goodwin on carl potts alien legion which was an imprint of marvel comics what was it like to work on a book where archie goodwin was the editor considering that you grew up reading a lot of his stuff I always had the sense that Archie knew that I idolized him, and it made him a little uncomfortable. I tried to keep it in check. I don't think I ever completely geeked out on Archie, but anyone who ever met Archie will agree. He's just one of the nicest guys who ever lived. Just the nicest guy, and smart and funny, and just a good guy. And he was the one that recommended me to Carl Potts, who was reluctant because he and Frank Scirocco own Alien Legion. He was a little reluctant to let this new guy take over Alien Legion, but Archie encouraged him, said he read my writing on Airboy, and, and I had met Archie number of times at conventions and I had a number of interviews with him and he knew that I was an eager beaver. He knew I would be conscientious and take care of Alien Legion. So he brought me on and again, pretty much left me alone. And amazing to me is Carl left me alone. Carl liked what I initially did and I never heard anything from Carl after that on anything. When we would be in a proposal stage, he might make a couple of suggestions and that was it. He really let me take his children and do what I wanted with them and he's always been very complimentary and every time Alien Legion comes to another iteration, he always asks me back to be involved again. So working with both of them together was a real treat. And how did 
do you feel when you're asked back on a project for any comic? Well, work is good. If they remember you once you're back, that's always a good thing. Because most of the characters I worked on, I didn't create. I'm just sort of a steward for them for a while. I didn't create Green Arrow, so people wrote it before me and people will write it after me. So it's nice when your contributions aren't entirely forgotten and they go, yeah, well, if we do this character, we got to have Chuck Dixon. If you do League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, who else are you going to call? You're going to call Alan Moore. It's nice to be that closely associated with something. And now you mentioned something about the con scene, and we mentioned it a few times, and the con scene has dramatically changed. What was it like in the 70s and the 80s for people who were trying to get in and just having that personal relationship with editors and artists and writers? Well, back then, it was all about comics. You know, there really wasn't anything else. 80s, Dungeons and Dragons was beginning to intrude a little bit. You would see some of that at shows. But for the most part, comic book conventions were about comic books and nothing else. And so the companies felt it was important to set up. So you would meet editors and then the companies would also pay to bring people along. So you would meet all these top flight creators and stuff from all over the world. And it was a different scene. It was more of a brotherhood or a fraternity than it is now. Now it doesn't seem to have that feel anymore. I guess because there's a lot more people. It's bigger. It's become more corporate. It's become more Hollywood. But back then it was a small town. In the 80s, I literally met everybody. I met everybody. I can't think of too many people I didn't meet who weren't doing comics in the 80s. From the United United States, Canada, England, South America, the Philippines, they were all there. You met everybody at one time or another. And now we're going to back out of the con scene and we're going to go into what people know you for, starting with The Punisher, where you got to work on Punisher Kingdom Gone graphic novel. How did this come about in this opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door with The Punisher? Well, I was happy doing any work in comics. I was doing all kinds of different comic books, but the one character I really wanted to get on was The Punisher. Because I felt I had an affinity for the character. I really liked him, and I thought this is something I'd really enjoy writing. And so I would pester the hell out of Don Daly, who was the editor at the time, to let me have a shot. But at that time, Carl Potts was writing War Journal, and Mike Barron was basically writing everything else. At one point at the Chicago Con, Mike Barron told me, you will never write The Punisher, because he was going to hold on to it. I was never going to get it. And it wasn't out of meanness. Mike and I are friends. But he wasn't going to let that character go. But eventually, that happened. And Don started buying individual issues from me, and then I proved my worth to him. And then he couldn't stop giving me stuff. He just gave me so much work on The Punisher. To the point where I think I was writing all three titles right up until their cancellation. So, always grateful to Don. He recognized, I think, the same thing I felt was my affinity for the character. It's the only character who, even after I left the titles, I still thought of stories for. I don't think of Batman stories. Until you're paid to do it, you don't really think about it. But Punisher stories I come up with all the time. And I want to just briefly talk about Punisher War Journal. Because you came into that comic on issue 38. What was it like coming into War Journal? And you had the longest run on War Journal, so I'm very curious why you feel that as a writer you had the longest run on it. Well, for one thing, when Don Daly moved on and I think Tim Tui was editing the book and I had a long run with Gary Quapas as the artist and we were handing the stuff in so far ahead of schedule because we were like a machine. At one point, Tim got in trouble at Marvel Editorial because he handed in a completely done issue 90 days ahead of deadline, which is unheard of. That has to be the first time that's ever happened at Marvel. We were three months ahead of schedule and he actually told us to slow down. So we started doing other stuff instead of just cranking out the issue 
issues. And it was that level of reliability. There was simply no reason to hire anybody else to write it because I was so far ahead on the book. And then Gary was keeping up with me. That period on Punisher was so much fun because we really just went nuts with the characters. We just came up with the craziest villains and craziest situations of any of the books that I worked on with Punisher. And while you're working on Punisher, which other people know, which we mentioned in the intro, you got discovered by DC Comics by one of my favorite interviews that I've done, which is Denny O'Neill. How did this all happen? What was the story behind how you got noticed? Denny said that he had read Airboy and liked it. And he liked how I approached writing a younger character and thought I might be good to come on and do a Robin miniseries. And I went up and met with him. I had met Denny a couple of times before, but nothing clicked. And I didn't even know he knew I was alive. And he asked me to come up and I met with him. And I believe Dan Raspler was his assistant at the time. And we went out to lunch and talked about it. And I said, you know, Robin was never my favorite character as a kid growing up. I didn't understand why there had to be a Robin. Now, in the comics today, that would have been it. I would have just moved on to some other guy. But Denny said, no, no, there, there's a reason for Robin. He explained it. And he had this great explanation about how it was a triumvirate of Batman, Alfred, and Robin. And if you eliminated any of those characters, it didn't work. Because Batman would just be a psychotic loner without any human attachments at all outside of being Batman. And then who wanted to read that? Because that'd be a boring character. So he presented the whole thing to me. And I said, you know what? I said, thinking about it, all of my favorite Batman stories had Robin in them. Robin was central to those stories. And he was like, exactly. So I said, well, let me see what kind of plot line I can come up with. I never say yes to a job unless I'm absolutely sure I can contribute something. So a couple of days later, I faxed him back in the faxing days. I faxed him a general outline of where I wanted to go. And he liked it. And he said, let's do that. He had some provisos up front. They wanted Robin to travel the world and on a tour, learning more skills the way Bruce Wayne had, things like that. There were things baked into it. But I came up with a different approach. I introduced that the different characters and new villains and things like that. And it all came out basically the way I presented it to Denny. And then, just like with Larry Hama, Denny couldn't do enough for me after that. He recommended me to everybody, sort of guided me along at DC and got me a whole ton of work there coming off of his recommendation and that starting game. And now, when you were writing this Robin series, it proved to be extremely popular. Did you have any idea that it would be this big deal and that it would be so much popularity would be driven to it? Tom Lyle, who was the artist on it, I remember at a meeting he asked Denny what he thought this might sell, predicting this might perform. And Denny said, I think it'll sell the way that our Catwoman relaunch sold, which did well. But we blew that away. Every time I went up there, you would meet the marketing people you never meet unless you're selling books. <laughs> they don't care about you unless you're selling. And they would come out and go, we're going back to press. I don't know how many times we went back to press on that first miniseries. And then the second miniseries was even bigger. We went back to press over and over and over again. And that's always good. Going back to press is good. And I had no clue. Tom Lyle and I were living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We were living not far from each other at the time. And we agreed to do a store appearance at a comic shop in Lancaster. And when Robin number one came out, the first issue of the miniseries, and Tom came by the house and picked me up and we're driving over and drive past the comic shop to go to the parking lot. And there's a line out the front door, this big line of people out the front door waiting for us. And I said to Tom, I said, it's important to remember that they're here for Robin. They're not here for us. They don't know who the hell we are. We're new to them. They're here for Robin. Let's just try to remember that. Because you know, that kind of thing can get your ego all blown out of proportion. And then from there on, it was crazy. The popularity of the book was amazing. And it continued through all three miniseries and even into the monthly. I would sign more Robins than anything else. And while 
all this was going on, and in particular with the third mini, you started to work on Detective Comics with issue 644. How did this come about, and how was this offered to you? Well, they had these retreats, and they called them the Bat Summits, where we would map out what was to come in Batman continuity. And then he said, I want you to come to the next Bat Summit. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just writing Robin. You got Doug Mensch, you got Alan Grant. They're doing the Bat books, I'm just doing Robin. Why can't you just tell me what to do after the summit? You guys figure out where Robin fits in the scheme of things. He's like, no, no, I really want you to be there. And I was really reluctant to go because I wasn't real big into socializing at these things. I always thought if you socialize with your boss and you socialize with the other creators, the potential there is for trouble. What if I say something they don't like? And then I'm on the outs. Like I said, it's a small town in comics. You can be on the outs very quickly. So I talked to Don Daly, who was my editor of Punisher. I talked to him about it because he used to work for Denny. I said, Denny wants me to go to his bat summit. I don't know. You know, I'm worried about it. What if I say the wrong thing? How am I going to fit in there? And Don said, how long do you want to be in this business? I said, well, to the day I die. He says, go to the summit. So I went to the summit. And the whole first day, I'm just sitting there like a fly on the wall while everybody else is talking because I'm still in the Robin book. I got nothing to contribute. And they're talking about what they're going to do here and what they're going to do there. And then we break for dinner. And Denny says to me, oh, stay back. Stay back a minute. Stay back. And everybody else leaves. And Denny says, do you want to write detective comics? I'm like, yeah. So that was it. I got detective comics. And you know, I ran on that for, what, 85 issues. And I was so proud of it because I was on the longest-running comic book in American history. I was going to take it over. So it was a huge deal. And now, at this Bat Summit, and, and please correct me, there is this little thing called Nightfall that is arguably one of the biggest Batman events out there that's most well-known. How did this all come about? Because Detective Comics kind of ran through it. Well, Denny laid out Nightfall for us. Denny's a real shy guy until he gets into his wheelhouse, which is comic book storytelling. And he laid out Nightfall like a showman. Like he was a motivational speaker selling us a book, selling us a program. Like we were going to be part of a cult. It was Nightfall. And he laid the whole thing out. From the get-go, it was so elegantly done, so perfect for the character, so epic. I was blown away. Now, I'm there with Doug Mensch and Alan Grant, who've been writing comics forever. So they're not as impressed as I am. I'm like the new guy. I'm like my first visit to the zoo. Whoa, this is so awesome. But he laid it all out. And the way he laid it out on that first day is the way it played out throughout. It's basically what he put down that day. Batman getting his back broken by a villain yet to be created and being out of commission. A new guy taking over the role, but the new guy's crazy. It doesn't work out. And had everything built into it. All the dramatic highlights were just built right into the story. And and Denny was serious about it not being what he called a stunt. He saw things like the death of Superman as a stunt. He wanted this to be a story that the fans would actually believe that this was going to be a change, that this new guy was going to be back and Bruce was out of the picture forever. He wanted to try to convince cynical comic book fans that there was going to be a complete change in the Batman titles and have it be a story worthy of being collected over and over again and having villains and situations come out of it could be used for years in Batman. So he succeeded at all that. It was lightning in a bottle. So amazing and so glad that I was there. It's such a great time to come on those books. I mean, I could not have picked a better time to have been brought on those books. So that was it. That was the beginning of it. And now Nightfall was laid out beautifully. It wasn't supposed to be a stunt like Superman's death. But there's this villain that has to break Batman's back. How did that come about, considering that you're the new guy and the villain that broke his back is Bane, and you created Bane along with 
Graham Nolan. How did this all come about? When we started on Nightfall, we got to the end of the summit. We had not created the new villain, the one who would incapacitate Batman, but it was understood he would be a new villain. Denny insisted we come out a new villain. And I'm thinking, well, this guy's got to be something incredible because he's taking down Batman. He can't just be a jerk. He can't be just some thug. And the existing villain at the time who would have been the most likely to have done it was KG Beast. But KG Beast, his day was over. The Soviet Union was gone and there was no reason to have the KG Beast anymore. So it's got to be somebody like that. It's got to be an intellectual and physical equal of Batman. Guy who's tough and smart. So this went on, and we had a placeholder name for him, Doc Toxic, because he would be fueled by Venom. That was the thing Denny insisted on. His Venom had been established in Batman continuity, and so he would be fueled by this drug, this super steroid. So Nightfall had a long lead-up. I mean, readers were unaware that we were leading up to something. We did all these stories that led up to Nightfall, not calling it Nightfall, not calling it an event, and setting the groundwork for when the event started. So we reached the end of those, and we had to start thinking about this villain seriously. So we had sort of a mini summit that only lasted two days and the first day of the summit the task was to create this new villain and when we first started talking i went on about how difficult it was going to be to create this new villain because he had to be popular for nightfall to work this character had to click the readers had to respond to him he couldn't be a throwaway villain he had to be somebody amazing and with some depth and resonance so that he would stick around long after this event was over and i said that's nearly impossible you can't intentionally create a popular character everybody's tried it and it doesn't work popular characters are created by accident. Superman was an afterthought. Wolverine was a one-issue Hulk villain. So how are we going to make the readers respond to this guy? And Denny said, well, if you think it's going to be so damn hard, then you do it. And they just sent me home to create Bane. And my wife can tell you, I sweated over it until I came up with this guy. And I talked a lot on the phone with Graham Nolan because I knew he was assigned the artist on the Bane special. And I pulled the name Bane out of the thesaurus, looked up evil, found the word Bane, and I called Scott Peterson, who was Denny's assistant at the time, and said, I want to call this guy Bane. And he says, oh, I hate that. And then they all hated it. I said, well, just think of him as Bane for a while. Let it roll around in your head for a while. And then a week later, he was Bane. There was no question anymore. Because they thought the name was too simple and short. I said, yeah, well, that's what's great about it. You're never going to forget it. So talked a lot with Graham, came up with the backdrop for the character, the background, why he was evil, what motivated him, how he was like Batman and unlike Batman, and then just rolled from there. So now you got... The idea for Bane, you got the name, you got some art. When did Alan and when did Doug know that Bane was going to be the guy who breaks Batman's back, considering they were working on the other parts of Nightfall? Somewhere before the next big summit, obviously, they were handed the script for Vengeance of Bane and the outline for the character and things like that. So they knew what we were talking about. So I don't really know. We would get packages of stuff to keep us all informed. And we all knew what each other were writing because we were writing so close. Because if you read Nightfall, one issue leads into the other. It's one big story. So we were all being kept up to date all the time about what each other were doing. And obviously, I mean, I think that something to talk about, Nightfall is divided into about 18 parts, at least the first part of Nightfall is. And you wrote different parts and they weren't like one, two, three, four. How did you know what to write and what were some of the challenges in writing and staying succinct with everybody else's writing in the same style and really keeping the story all together? Well, when we got deep into it, the first summit basically set us up with the concept and then we were doing the setup stories. Basically, Batman's frame of mind stories because he was becoming exhausted. So we were working on the downfall of Batman that would culminate with meeting Bane. And some of that downfall was, of course, incited by Bane. So it wasn't until the second summit 
that we really started getting cracking on how the thing was going to work. And I remember lots and lots of whiteboards, a room with lots and lots of whiteboards in it, with assistant editors, Scott Peterson, Jordan Gorfinkel, writing, keeping timelines going. And there were these lines on the whiteboard, and it would show the progression of the different arcs within the storyline. Then those arcs would be divided up by issue. And so by the end of that summit, which was a grueling summit, but fun, this work isn't hard. It's writing comic books. It's making stuff up. <laughs> so it's fun. But there were long days, long, long days, and a lot of talking into the evening. So by the end of that summit, we knew precisely this issue of Shadow of the Bat begins here and ends here. This issue of Batman begins here and ends here. This issue of Detective begins here and ends here. And in each of those issues, you must reference this, this, and this, and this, this, and this. And it was great because we were all there creating it at the time. And the assistant editors who were also helping create it, they were writing it down. So we had a record of all this. So each issue you did, you knew precisely what was expected of you. Now, how you got there was up to you. Denny insisted that we go our own way on everything. But tell your story, but these elements must be included. The story must end here, setting the next guy up. It was seamless. We never had a problem. We never had a difficulty. And everybody got so much great stuff to write. It wasn't like there were dead issues. We were like, oh, I got to write that? That's crappy. No, nothing was crappy. Because when these things are done poorly, you end up with, I got to write a whole issue of exposition, like a guy explaining something or a guy riding on a train to get to the next part of the story. No, there was none of that. Every story was cramped with all these great moments and great character bits and great dramatic highlights. So it worked like a machine. It was fantastic. And Nightfall, again, I'm going to stress it is probably one of the most well-known Batman stories. And it produced so many different elements of Batman from Batman being broken, from being burned out both mentally and physically, all the way to a world without Bruce Wayne, and then his triumphant return to get back his cowl and dealing with Azrael, and even dealing with Bane and how Gotham has changed. How do you feel that Nightfall changed the DC Universe, and in particular Batman? The thing to remember is that Nightfall, we were doing it, and pretty much simultaneously, the first animated series was being done as well. There was sort of an energy built between us and the creators on the animated show. And that was kind of a neat thing to see, that we were sharing a lot of concepts, and there was a lot of back and forth there. And they were busy on their animated show. They weren't as involved with the comics, but they were looking at what we were doing. And it was a lot of encouragement back and forth. So there was this kind of energy that I think carried on for years after nightfall and we set up all these new relationships robin firmly in place nightwing returns to the bat family which is a big event for us and one of the goals of nightfall was to bring nightwing back into the batman family and lots of new villains and then we established things that were kind of out there but not really firmly established things like blackgate and arkham and what their nature was and who ran them things like that i mean the, the sheer number of characters we added to the franchise is astounding and then we begin to see harley quinn appearing in the books things like that things borrowed from the animated show and then renee montoya is added to our cast so there was a lot of back and forth there between the cartoon and the comics but it all left an indelible mark which exists on batman to this day in one form or another it has as big an impact on the franchise as the 1966 show denny's 70 comics things like that that really changed the course of the character or added more depth nightfall does that it brings a lot of stuff to light and establishes a lot of things that weren't established before and now nightfall set up as you just alluded to it several other events contagion legacy Catalyst, and then No Man's Land, which all really led into one another all throughout the 90s, which has really given you being the most prolific Batman writer of the 90s. So how do you feel that these events played out 
with the Batman family and how Nightfall really kicked them off. We were sort of damned by our success because Nightfall had been so successful, they kept looking to us for a follow-up, something that big, which they didn't do that on the Superman books. There wasn't a lot of follow-up. He got married and things like that. There were events, but from us, they wanted more stunts. And I think Denny had exhausted himself with Nightfall, and deservedly so. It was left up to the assistant editors to begin coming up with stunt ideas. And I love those guys, friends with them to this day, and they know this. They know what I'm going to say. I was not a big fan of Contagion, and I really wasn't a big fan of Cataclysm. I thought, these aren't Batman stories, because what is Batman going to do again? the disease invent a doctor superhero and then have contagion and what the heck is he going to do against an earthquake i mean cataclysm would have been an incredible superman story think about it if that had happened to metropolis something that's this tremendous natural event this catastrophe that superman could not avert there's nothing batman could do to an earthquake except react to it and i thought that wasn't good and i did my best work and everything else my heart wasn't in it they knew it at the time i said i think this is a mistake and denny was so adverse to involving that was the thing where it fell apart for me cataclysm wouldn't batman call on the other superheroes to help but then he was so averse to that which i understood but to readers it would make no sense at all and i remember i kept sweating the logistics of all these things and nobody seemed to care about it but me well how are they going to rebuild gotham and i was reading these architectural magazines engineering magazines and books but how would you rebuild gotham as quickly as possible and then the one that i was most in love with was how do you rebuild wayne manor because the bat cave is under it the contractors rebuilding Wayne Manor are going to discover that cave. There's no way around it. It's right there. They're going to be digging a new foundation. And hey, these caverns lead down to, oh my God, it's the Batmobile. So I said, why don't we have them build Wayne Manor off-site, recreate Wayne Manor on a concrete pad. And then the next day they come to do some finishes on it and it's gone. And what happened was Superman came in the middle of the night and moved it to where it should be. Basically took Wayne Manor and placed it atop the Batcave where it used to be. And man, Denny hated that idea. And I said, well, you don't even have to say it was Superman. Just has some little hint so the reader knows that's how it happened. And he just hated that idea. So we ended up after Cataclysm with six months later and everything's back to normal. Gotham's back. Wayne Manor's back. It didn't work for me. And then we went into Legacy, and Legacy was more driven by me and Graham Nolan than anyone else. So obviously I liked Legacy because <laughs> it was my idea. But that was really our last big thing that Nightfall crew was together for because Alan and Doug were still on their books. Then we all got fired because sales were falling, and they wanted everybody out. So they fired Doug and Alan and me off the Batman books, but they kept me on Robin and Nightwing, which there was a great deal of resentment from Doug especially because, yeah, I was fired, but I was kept on. And then when No Man's Land came about, I was in involved a little bit at the very beginning of that but not throughout so i contributed some arcs but that's about it i was just told hey we want this to happen and this character's in it and blah 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 this is where it needs to end so i was like a side player for a lot of no man's land and i had problems with no man's land too again logistics it didn't work for me it didn't seem believable and now as all this was going on you were kept on robin nightwing you at one point we're heading up Catwoman, as well as Green Lantern. Green Arrow. Green Arrow. My mistake. Right. Green Arrow. Yeah. And you might have had something to do with Blue Haven, but what was it like really working on those titles at one point and also really developing Birds of Prey? Well, Robin, once we were done with the miniseries, they wanted a monthly as soon as the first miniseries was done. And I told them, I said, I don't think this character's ready for a monthly. He doesn't have an ensemble cast. And if I have to introduce it in the monthly, it's going to make it boring for the first few issues because I've got to set him up in Tim Drake's world. So I said, let me build an ensemble cast. Let's do a few more minis. I mean, why not? They're selling like crazy. So they did the second one and they were very, very happy. 
happy with that one. And then by the end of the third one, I said, okay, I got my cast now. I got his high school friends. I have his father established. I have all this stuff established, what Tim Drake's life is like. And then it was perfect because that's right when the John Paul Valley, the new Batman, basically throws Robin out of the Batcave. So this is a great place to start a monthly. So that went swimmingly. And then by issue six of Robin, I owned that book. There's just no other way around it. I understood that book. It was in my blood. It was in my brain. And I was left alone all the way up to issue 100. Nobody ever told me what to do in that book at all because there was no reason to. It was working. It was clicking. And it's not because I'm a genius or anything else. It all just came together and worked seamlessly. And they gave me some awesome artists to work with. And that's always inspiring. So I went through this gallery of great artists. Then Nightwing initially was going to be co-written by Denny O'Neill and Alan Grant with Scott McDaniel on art. And for whatever reason, they both bailed three weeks before the first script was done. So Scott Peterson was the editor, and I guess he was in a panic. I never tell if Scott's panicked or not. He's always so calm. He called me, said, would I like to take it over? And I said, well, who's the artist? He said, Scott McDaniel. And Scott had just done one of those amalgam books called Assassins, and I loved it. I thought the art was terrific. I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. I said, what do you want in the book? And he said, we got to create this new city. It's called Bloodhaven. And Scott said, and I want a Jackie Chan movie every issue. That's it. So I started writing, and I came up with like a year-long arc. And I just started writing, and I was way ahead on all my other projects, so I just concentrated on Nightwing for a few months. And I wrote the first 12 issues before Scott McDaniel ever even started it. So the whole first year was written, and it was great because I could go through that first year because I had time and there was no penciler waiting. I could go back and make sure everything worked. So it's written as one big, long, year-long story. So I could go back and make little changes that you don't get to do if it's handed off to an artist and you start working. So again, seamless, and Scott pretty much left me alone for the whole run of that book. And then Birds of Prey was Jordan Gorfinkel's idea. And it was a book I didn't want to do. The high concept was Black Canary goes to work for Oracle. And I didn't see it. I didn't see how it worked. And he says, it's like a diehard movie. I'm like, what does that mean? I don't get it. Why would these two characters start working together? And I said, Black Canary just had her book canceled. Why would anybody want to read this? And he goes, no, it works. The chemistry between the two characters would work. I said, I don't see it. And he kept bothering me and bothering me. Thank God he didn't go to another writer. He kept insisting that I was the guy. So he just bothered me and bothered me until I said, okay, 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 let's do a one shot. So I wrote this one shot and about five pages into it, I thought, yeah, man, Jordan was right. This works. These two characters. She's reckless and impulsive. Oracle is look before you leap and has to have all the knowledge before she does anything. And then his whole idea of them not meeting, Oracle is just the voice on the phone. It just clicked. It was just wonderful. And so we did a bunch of one-shots and a miniseries, and Jordan kept pushing for a monthly, pushing, 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 until they just let him have a monthly. And then we went on that and remained popular for its entire run. Even after I left, the book was extremely popular. And I'm proud of it because we did a book with two female protagonists, and they kept their clothes on. It was never a good girl book. It was just about two intelligent, tough women and their adventures. And I was proud of that. And I think that's the reason why women liked it so much, because it wasn't pandering or insulting. And while working on all of these titles dealing with the Bat family, when did Spoiler slash Stephanie Brown get created and introduced? And where did that concept come from, speaking about strong women? When Tom Lyle and I were done with, I think, the second run miniseries they moved this on to detective so tom was my artist going into detective and spoiler started as a plot device i thought what if clue master who is a really lame villain he's just the riddler why they create clue master they already had the riddler who was cool and Clue Master's lame. Even when I was a kid, I thought he was lame. And what if this lame loser supervillain had a rebellious teenage daughter? And of course, what form would her rebellion take? She'd become a vigilante. She'd try to spoil her father's crimes. And it was strictly a plot device for one story. 
So I did it, and it worked, and parts of it were funny. And I got to sort of a childhood dream of humiliating the master. <laughs> so he brought down by his own kid. And then I forgot about it. This is back when we used to get letters. The letters started coming. And it wasn't, can we see spoiler again? It's, when will we see spoiler again? They were simply assuming that she was going to join the gang. She was going to be a recurring character. We're going to see her again. And so the editors started saying, hey, think of another story she can be in. So I started inserting her into the Robin Monthly more and more. And then I just fell in love with the character. It's had a tremendous affinity for the character. Of all the characters I've created for the superhero genre, she's the one that's most alive in my mind. She just seems like a three-dimensional, believable character that I knew what she would think, and I knew what she would say, and I knew how she would react in every situation. And she was just wildly popular with the fans. They just couldn't get enough of the character. Again, it's what I said before. You create these characters by accident. She was never intended to be popular, but it all took off. And then she's been Robin. She's been Batgirl. They keep using Stephanie Brown over and over again. And Stephanie plays a very interesting role in Batman War Games, and you left DC by that point, but that was pretty significant because we really see, you didn't write War Games, but we see Batman react very differently than he's reacted with almost any other Robin he's had or Nightwing he's had, and being that it was your character, how did you feel about it, and how did you feel seeing that scene? I don't know if you read it, but it's, it's a very I, yeah, I, scene. I've seen the, Yeah, I've seen the scene. It's just, I didn't like having a character created killed. Nobody does. And in such a brutal and perverse way, I really didn't care for that. I didn't think that level of violence has a place. I'm not a Killing Joke fan. When you move into that level of real-world violence and suffering, you've left superheroes behind. You've left the fantasy element of superheroes behind. That's sort of naivete of the superhero genre. And I didn't care for that. I didn't care that it was a character that I had a lot of affection for. But they brought her back. They allowed me to bring her back to life. But not a big fan of that. And how do you feel that you got the opportunity to bring her back versus somebody else? Well, that was cool. I mean, that was fun. I just like to see them utilize her more as a spoiler. I also like an action figure. What the heck? She's got to be the only character at DC that hasn't had an action figure. I think like Mr. Terrific's had 19 action figures. Spoilers never had one. So what's going on there? Tell me, DC, why don't you like spoiler for toys but she doesn't get used all that often she's been in a couple of games but that's it and you had to leave i guess the canon of batman you had a very interesting opportunity where batman and the punisher had a crossover what was that like i had been pushing for a batman punisher crossover exactly the same story that i ended up writing for like two years and i kept pushing for it and they just got a lot of resistance tom defalco was editor-in-chief great guy but in any crossover your first question is what's in it for us and don daly was the punisher editor would keep saying what's in it for us batman sells more than punisher <laughs> there's a lot in it for us it's not like we're lending them our greatest most successful character because punisher's sales were okay but he wasn't selling what batman sold so finally, whatever wheels moved and gears shifted, and suddenly we were going to do two Batman crossovers, one with John Paul Valley, which Denny was going to write, and then one with me and John Romita Jr. on the artwork. So I was in heaven, and Archie was the editor, so everything was perfect for me. And again, it was the same story I was going to do before. I really didn't change anything because I wanted to get to that moment where the Punisher is the one who corners Joker and Joker offers his psychoanalysis of Batman and Punisher. That to me was a big scene. That's what I wanted to get to. And that's another book I sign a whole lot of. Boy, that must have sold like a house of fire. So I got to do the Punisher. But the thing that crisped me the most was it was the second Punisher crossover, not with Batman, but of all time, because his first crossover was with Archie. And I gave Don such a hard time about that. So why in the world? You cheapen the Punisher. I mean, what's in it for us? Crossing over with Archie, what was in it for you? That was so silly. 
And now, I'm a little hesitant to ask, <laughs> but after all of this on DC, you left and you worked for several different companies, and you eventually returned to DC, but I want to talk about something more recent, which is Clint and Cash, where you did the graphic novel adaptation of the book. How did that all come about? I call Brett Smith the mother of Clinton Cash, the graphic novel, because he was really pushing to put this thing together. And he met with some people from Breitbart and was pushing the idea of doing comics. Brett's theory, and I agree with it wholeheartedly, is that the left owns popular culture. There's simply no denying that. And the, the right, 30 years. the last 30 years, and the right doesn't do anything in popular culture. They leave it alone. They don't seem to understand that you can reach people through comics, through television, through music, and you should find creators who can do that. So the idea, and I don't know where it was born, but the idea came up of doing Clinton Cash as a graphic novel, basically to get the concept of Clinton Cash, Peter Schweitzer's book, out to more people than had read it before. And I think they were looking for a dumbed-down sort of dummies guy to Clinton corruption. So Brett immediately, because we had been talking and we had done a couple of things together prior for the Dennis Miller show, he suggested me to write it. And Breitbart agreed because I had previously adapted Amity Schley's The Forgotten Man into a graphic novel, and that was a bestseller and political. Not as political as Clinton Cash, but definitely had a political point of view, a conservative point of view, a history of the Great Depression. Paul Revoche did the art. If you haven't seen it, it's freaking amazing. He just killed it. Just gorgeous, gorgeous book. But anyway, so on the basis of that and the sales, because Forgotten Man did very well, well, maybe this would work. So he brought me on board. And I was like, well, what approach do we take? Because I read the book and the book is numbers and names. There's nothing comic book in that book. It's just facts, facts, facts. And it's just this indictment of the Clintons and how crooked money grubbing they are and how they've built this multi-billion dollar nonprofit empire basically is their kingdom from foreign money, whatever, questionable sources. But there's no comic book there. There's no action. There's no nothing. So Brett and I talked about it and everything else. And I said, look, the only way this is going to work is to take a national lamp approach to it to do a straight comic it looks like a comic but juxtapose it and exaggerate everything in this story and use a lot of symbolism and things like that and make it not only clinton cash as a comic book but also kind of a parody of the comic book medium because that's what national lampoon used to do and their comics were funny in and of themselves but they were also made fun of the comics medium itself they had a lot of fun with it riffing so that's the only way to do it so we had a hard time explaining this to the breitbart people we approach i thought let me write five pages so i wrote the first five pages of the graphic novel and they sent them to peter schweitzer and i thought he's either going to love it or hate it he said i love this I love this. This is what you should do. Go with this. He says, you have my blessing to just go nuts with my book if this is what you're going to do. So that's what we did. The second challenge was to find artists who were willing to step into the light, basically say, yes, my name is Graham Nolan and I am a conservative. <laughs> so I said to Brett, I said, well, I have personal friends who will do this. They will step into the light. Sergio, Paul Ravoche, and Graham Nolan. And then Brett brought along Don Hudson. And then we used a lot of other guys because, man, the schedule was punishing. We brought in a lot of other guys to help, too. Then we were sailing, and the lawyers made us make a few changes before publication because we got into the weeds on a few things. A few things would have been slanderous or actionable, but the rest was covered under parody and satire, which is protected under the First Amendment. So we went for it. It was an enormous success right off the bat. And now this book and Breitbart is conservative. By no means can you paint this liberal but the comic industry, I think we were speaking about it for the last 30 years, has been relatively dominated by liberals and more of the left, as most of pop culture is. So, yet the book did exceptionally well, and it well, sold amazingly, considering what it was. How do you think that was for this book? 
the comics industry, and I'm talking the big two here, not the indies, the independent publishers know how to find their own audience. The big two, DC and Marvel, and Marvel in particular, they've sort of left their audience behind. They're searching for some audience that doesn't exist. There's some army of a million hipsters out there they think are eventually going to start buying comics. It doesn't exist. So they've abandoned their readership, and they've abandoned the casual reader. And that's been the death for comics. That's been the worst thing to happen to comics, because they're not really on the newsstand. When they are on a newsstand, they're too damn expensive. And the casual readership is gone. We've lost a generation of readers, maybe two generations of readers, since we abandoned the newsstand. The only readily accessible comic, and I don't know if it's true everywhere, is the Archie Digest. And our supermarkets have them in the pockets of the impulse aisle. So there's Archie Comics. That's basically the only comic books anybody ever sees outside of a comic book shop. And as we know, 99% of Americans will never set foot in a comic book shop in their whole life. So you shrunk your audience down. Well, what Clinton Cash did was it reached out to people that normally would never look at a comic or hadn't looked at a comic book in a long time. But that darn cover is so seductive. It's so cool. And then we got to also promote it using conservative media, mostly talk radio, which is powerful. I mean, I did so many radio interviews and podcasts. It's crazy. And I was pushing to any market that would listen. And every time Brett or I went on the radio, we sold books. We watched the numbers go up. And then we were embraced by Milo Yiannopoulos, which was our biggest boost. He simply tweeted out a picture of him holding a copy of the book, and the sales climbed. So there's that whole Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh way of pushing books that we were allowed into for Clint Cash. And it could be done again and again and again. Those readers will read more graphic novels, and that's a whole new audience. And I'd like to see that audience expand and do a lot more material. Not just Clinton Cash, do other stuff as well. Because there's a ready audience for comics out there, but the big two are no longer pursuing. Because if you don't like superheroes you're pretty much out of luck with the big two and given that this book was conservative how did that affect you professionally and personally well well, that ship had sailed that bridge was burnt a long time ago because i would share my opinion if we were talking at a lunch or whatever and politics came up i'd say what was on my mind hey this is america you're allowed to do that and in the denny o'neill archie goodman era you could disagree with everybody and didn't affect your career because it was about comics it wasn't about politics and then somewhere around the year 2000 it became about politics and not comics. And not only just politics, but clicks. You had to like the right kind of music. You had to like the right kind of movie. You had to be of a hive mind. And this, again, is at the big two. This doesn't exist in the independents. The independents are literally independent. But Marvel and DC share the same talent pool, share the same editorial pool. The editors move back and forth, back and forth between the two companies. So you're really dealing with one entity. And I did not fit in. I was an outsider. So got less and less work. So Clinton Cash to me was like, hey, why not? It's a payday. It's a paycheck. And I'm already blacklisted. So this isn't going to hurt me anymore. What I underestimated was who really knew Trump was going to win. The Trump backlash in the comic industry is like freaking scary. It really is. It's terrifying. Yeah. If I had a career at the big two, it would be over now for sure and over forever because they just really hate Trump. It's an unhinged wrath they feel. So, yeah, I'd really be an outsider now. But, you know, I managed to find work. There's lots of work out there outside of the big two. You just have to look for it. I still have the same qualities I've always had. I'm reliable. My stories make sense. My characters are likable. So I always get work. But it's problematic, especially now in Marvel. They're in some sort of weird suicide pact with each other to drive away as many readers as possible. And now the last thing I want to talk about, backing out of Breitbart and Clinton Cash, which I thoroughly enjoyed, is you returned to D.C. for Bane Conquest. 
why and how and I don't understand. Please elaborate on that. Well, there's a lot of backroom stuff there involved that dealt with the movies and things like that. Also, in our participation contracts, we have the right of first refusal in any comic entitled main. So they kind of had to bring it to us first. But it was something we talked about with them. We were involved in negotiations involving the participation rights and things about Bane and the subject of a project came up and Graham and I said yeah as long as a project is of the type we would be interested in doing and we want it to be significant so that's how we ended up with 12 issues because we didn't want to come back for a nostalgia tour we wanted to do the kind of project we would have done if our runs on characters had not been interrupted and that's basically what Bane Conquest is it's where we would have gone with Bane Graham and I are very invested in Bane as a character and we want it to continue so everybody was in agreement and everything's gone great the editors are super happy and everybody's happy and we're ahead of schedule it's doing well i don't know if it's going to lead to more dc work maybe maybe not i don't know but i'm really proud of it and when you see where we're going with this thing i think it's going to have a significant impact on the character forever and now without giving too much away because we want people to go out and buy it what can fans expect in this 12 issues Bane Conquest is Bane's attempt to go global outside of gotham and establish himself as a world crime figure so it's like a year-long, enormous, hyped-up gangster epic is, is what it is. And he runs up against every other criminal organization existent in the DCU and, for the most part, conquers all of them. And as we'll see in the next few issues coming out, I just got my comps on issue five today. By issue six, you'll begin to see that his biggest adversary is yet to come. It's him at war with the criminal element of the DCU to see who's going to be boss in the end. And now we covered a lot and we covered a lot of things across the spectrum. But before we go, I am very curious, considering that you've been writing comics for over 30 years, what advice you have for people who want to get into comic book writing? I always joke that if you want to write comics now, you should first write a hit movie or television series. <laughs> that seems to be where they're picking a lot of guys. A lot of guys in Hollywood are slumming in comics. It's difficult to just be a dedicated comic book writer, which is what I've always been. So you've got to get yourself noticed. And it's changed because you can't go to a convention to meet an editor. You know, editors are like endangered, rarely seen species out in the wild. So you've got to get the attention of the comic book reading public first. And the internet lends itself to that. If you can do a webcomic. And I see an awful lot of guys who have their own publishing endeavors who simply put sweat equity into their comic books by going to shows and literally selling them themselves and seem to do okay. They're getting to do comics, they're getting to make comics, and they're getting to put money in their pockets. And you never know when something like that's going to take off. Because everything in comics now is not about making money in comics. It's about attracting Hollywood so that you get deals from movie and television or games. So everything is about that because the sales simply aren't there for comics to be profitable, which is kind of a sad thing. But you can still make comics, which is the happy part for me because I like making comics. I like writing comics. So you can still write them because comic books are kind of a think tank for Hollywood now, but that's the way it is. So I would urge anybody, come up with a high concept, create your own idea, find a way to do it, to get attention for it through social media and go with that. I mean, I see it done. It's like the music industry. It's broken up into niches. Once upon a time, you had to do a 20 city tour and make a bazillion dollars and sell a bazillion records, but now you don't. You have bands that do very well doing 50,000 downloads of their new CD. That's the way comics is now. If you can sell 10,000 comics of your own comic, it's all your money. You're going to make as much money as if you sold 100,000 through DC or Marvel. So it's a garage band economy in comics. 
And then finally, I'd like to give you an opportunity to promote anything you have, Facebook, Twitter, website, Zensco, books that you have out or are coming out or convention appearances that you will be attending. Well, you mentioned Xenoscope. I'm doing Van Helsing versus the Werewolf for Xenoscope. Van Helsing's daughter battling a werewolf at the top of the world. And I also write novels. I have two series of novels that are available on Amazon. I got the Levon Cade series. It's kind of a Punisher thing. The vigilante fighting crime on his own with his 11-year-old daughter by his side. And then I have another series called Bad Times. It's about a group of time-traveling U.S. Army Rangers who get themselves into trouble in the past. And then I've got other stuff I'm working on. It's at the stage where i can't talk about it yet where can people just keep up to date with anything that you have coming out what is the best place well there's chuckdixon.net which has a lot of essays and things on i don't know how much up to date you can be i have an author page on facebook and then you can always just put my name in at Amazon. That'll tell you everything that's coming out over the next couple of years. I also have a creator-owned series coming out in October from IDW called Uncrap. It's a survivalist comedy. As always, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. And we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And this week's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Coinbase. If you click on the link down below, they have a great deal going on where when you buy $100 of Bitcoin or sell $100 of Bitcoin, you get $10 and I get $10, which helps to keep this show up and running. And I truly believe that cryptocurrencies are the future of the world. So definitely now is the time to get involved and you are going to get a 10% return on your investment of $100. So it's a great time to invest. All you got to do is click on the link down below, sign up, buy 100 bucks, and you get another $10 for free, no charge to you. And if you're not into Bitcoin, I completely understand, but you could definitely follow us on Twitter at PopAnimeComics, as well as check out our website, PopAnimeComics.com, for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture, as well as give our Facebook page a like. It's PopAnimeComics. And until next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.